So welcome to A Correction Podcast. I'm your host, Beth Moscow. Today, we are excited to be joined once again by Peter Hudis, who is a professor of philosophy and humanities at Oakton Community College and author of Marx's Concept of the Alternative to Capitalism and Franz Fanon, Philosopher of the Barricades. He edited the Rosa Luxemburg Reader from Monthly Review Press in 2004 and the Letters of Rosa Luxemburg from Verso in 2013. Welcome back to the show, Peter. Thank you. Good to be here. So let's get right to it. You wrote a really interesting piece for the Rosa Luxemburg Institute. You asked the question, can Rosa Luxemburg's work help us understand the nature of racialized capitalism? And before we answer that question, maybe you could tell us what you mean by racialized capitalism. Well, uh, the term actually goes back to the early 1990s when it was coined uh, during the South African liberation struggle against apartheid, or actually even before the 90s especially by individuals like Neville Alexander to try to explain the specific nature of capitalism in a place like South Africa, where um, class relations and capital accumulation was intricately connected to uh, racial discrimination and racial subordination. And in a South African context, of course, it therefore becomes really impossible to talk about the nature of capital and capitalism uh, without speaking about, without without seeing it uh, through a racial lens and without uh, seeing uh, class as overdetermined by race, uh, even more so than race is maybe overdetermined by class. But the term, of course, has an earlier providence and works, uh, uh, it was picked up in providence by other writers, uh, independent, uh, connected to and also independent from South Africa. Of course, most famously, uh, Cedric Robinson, his book, Black Marxism, and many of the discussions that ensued in the last 30 years since then, in which there's an effort to try to think of of, ca- of racism and capitalism, not as uh, distinctly uh, independent entities, not as independent variables, uh, but as inseparable in some respects from each other. And certainly when we look at the American experience, uh, where class relations in American history have always been mediated by racial determination since per- virtually the inception of this country, long before we were actually the United States, all the way back to the colonial period, thinking of capitalism as an inherently racist system becomes, of course, extremely pertinent. That is some of what sparked uh, the title of the talk. So in your piece, you say that, you know, it's interesting. We have theories, we have Marxist theories of politics, history, finance, culture, media, art, etc. But we are are lacking a, we say, a strictly Marxian theory of racialization. Mm-hmm. Why do you think that is? Well, first, let me qualify the statement somewhat, uh, because there should be a kind of a footnote there to acknowledge uh, enormously important work that was done by a number of individual Marxists uh, on questions of race and racism going back quite a long ways. I mean, we think of somebody, if you want to go back early to the early 20th century, Hubert Harrison, for instance, who was a black communist uh, who uh, early who made the, formulated the expression uh, the black American as the touchstone of American history and racism as the Achilles heel of American civilization. This is somebody who came out of the communist movement, but influenced by the Garvey black nationalist movement and was seeking ways to dialogue and accommodate these two political tendencies. And then there were also other figures that were more activist orientated. Uh, Lovett Fort Whiteman is an outstanding uh, uh, expression in the 1920s. He founded the American Negro Labor Congress which was the first real effort of American Marxists to root themselves deeply uh, within uh, the black community. 
Uh, and then, of course, you have figures like Oliver, Oliver, Oliver Cox, who wrote a magnificent book in the late 1940s, trying to deal with issues of race and racism, Eric Williams, and of course, C.O.R. James, who in the early 50s, in which he tried to push the Marxist movement to recognize uh, the question of racism in a more profound manner. So there have been efforts within Marxism, very often from those within the colonial world, that is, those who are themselves people of color subjected to colonial domination, who recognize, we can add people like Richard Wright into this equation and many, many others, uh, who uh, felt that established Marxism was not making enough room uh, for black subjectivity or the subjectivity of struggles against racism in general. And, uh, and yet they ran up against the orthodox Marxism, which kind of was class reductionist and was not, didn't mean that they were not sensitive to racism uh, or did not fight actively against racial discrimination. Uh, but in terms of developing a theoretical understanding of the relationship of capital and race, uh, that was uh, actually a minoritarian tendency. So when you look at Marxism more generally, um, the question that you're asking is a really pertinent one, because even it makes it even a more difficult question to answer. There were these efforts to push uh, in the direction of uh, confronting or analyzing the racialized nature of capitalism, not just in particular historical periods like the United States or South Africa, but thinking of why capitalism uh, reproduces on a global level uh, racial uh, discrimination and racial differentiation and what explains that. Uh, I think one of the reasons that it has been difficult to do this within the Marxian framework is that much of post-Marx Marxism, frankly, became economistic. It became too concerned with property forms and market relations and their critique. And that is because the prevailing assumption of what was wrong with capitalism, um, or at least what defines capitalism uh, among many Marxists was basically not that different than how a neoclassical economist would define the nature of capitalism. That is, it's defined by existence of private ownership of the means of production uh, and uh, free markets or semi-free markets in commodities, capital and labor, which follows from that, that if you abolish free markets or so-called semi-free markets in labor power, commodities, uh, and capital, and you abolish through nationalization of property, private ownership of the means of production, that fundamentally constitutes socialism. If that's one's perspective of what Marxism is fundamentally about, it's kind of hard to integrate theoretically and strategically, politically as well, I think, how does race factor in? Because you can nationalize the means of production, but does that transform the human relations uh, that are embodied in racialized ways of seeing? Uh, racism is not just a question of economic inequality or the lack of political rights being bestowed upon a national minority, although, of course, both are involved. There's not only an economic and a political, there's also a psychological dimension, right, in which people simply, who, despite their economic, what's in their best economic interest, uh, discriminate against people of another, of another race uh, because it gives them a kind of psychological sense of self-satisfaction or it's a way for them to deal with their own sort of insecurities and neuroses. And if that factor is not made central to your critique of society, uh, then it's kind of class and race become independent variables that you can't figure out quite how to see their relationship. Uh, or at least it's, it, it certainly is a big barrier in the way of doing so. So I think the fundamental answer to your question is, in shorthand, is Marxism in its original form, as Marx articulated, it, is a humanism. 
Marx criticizes the market, private property, and the and markets from the certain vantage point. However, he's criticizing them because they're expressions of alienated human relationships. So the fundamental target of a true Marxian critique of capital, I believe, is to target alienated forms of human relations, human relations that take on the form of relations between things. That's the fundamental object of analysis of Das Kapital, his major theoretical work. Now, true, Marx has a relatively narrow focus, you can say, in that work, insofar as he's looking at primarily the class determination, of the class dimension of alienation, the way that human relations take on the form of relations between things in the labor process and how that determines the structure of society. But that's because that was the specific kind of alienation he had to deal with in his time, given the nature of industrial capitalism and the emergence of mass workers' movements against uh, these conditions of capitalist exploitation and dehumanization. Today, we have to make much more explicit what's implicit in Marx's original analysis, that the object of critique, that is, dehumanized human relationships, human relationships that take the form of relations between things, is central to class domination, but it's not exclusively a matter of class domination. That kind of alienation, that kind of dehumanization, that kind of domination of the subject by the object, or what we may call reification, occurs also in terms of gender discrimination, and it occurs also in terms of racial discrimination. And in some respects with racial discrimination, it's even more predominant. Because even when the capitalist looks at the worker as a mere object, as a thing to produce surplus value, and doesn't really give a crap about who the worker is as an individual, cares about how much value and surplus value that worker generates for him, they still have to acknowledge that worker in some respect as a person because living labor is a source of value. They can't do without living labor. And so on some level, there is a kind of recognition going on. But when it comes to racial discrimination, when you think of slavery, when you think of like, of, you know, Marx talks about this in Capital, the average slave lasted seven years once they arrived in Africa from the Americas, at least in South America and the Caribbean, prior to the early 1800s, prior to the early 18, before the 1820s. We were talking about conditions of what is properly called social death is a complete denial of human subjectivity embedded in race, in racial discrimination. And unless your critique of capitalism is a humanist critique of capitalism that focuses on the perverted form of human relationships as the fundamental problem, which has different expressions in class, in race, in gender, et cetera. But unless that's your focal point, I think it's gonna be hard to develop a racial, a, a Marxian, an adequate Marxian theory of racialization. So where does Rosa Luxemburg fit into this? I have to say, I was, I was intrigued by your title which is something like, you know, how can Rosa Luxemburg help us understand racialized capitalism? Because um, I didn't know that she had a whole lot to say about racism. Right. Uh, and that's unfortunate that a lot of people uh, come away thinking that. And it's understandable because for Luxemburg herself, um, she viewed, for, as far as Luxemburg was concerned, there was one fundamental uh, force of revolution, and that was the proletariat. And all of her life was devoted to proletarian self-emancipation. Uh, there's no question that that was the subject of revolution as, as far as she saw matters. And other struggles for liberation, such as national liberation struggles, struggles of women, feminist movements, etc. While in certain cases she can support them, and she was certainly very supportive of efforts to combat sexism and efforts to combat national uh, chauvinism and discrimination, 
she held that it was the working class that was the fundamental force of social transformation. Uh, to the extent that uh, when it came to the national come, came to national liberation struggles, she was largely dismissive of them. She was not so dismissive of feminist struggles, uh, though people thought she was. Uh, you know, more recent, the last several decades, is more or less a consensus among many feminists who have reread Rosa Luxemburg that she actually had a powerful feminist dimension, but she didn't openly advertise it. Okay, in other words, it was not something she focused on primarily or made an issue of in the same degree that she did of the class struggle. So it's easy to come away uh, assuming that, well, what would Luxembourg have to say to this issue, which is exactly why I picked that as the title of my talk, because I always like to, you know, try to uh, break the paradigm by which people look at things, or at least sh shake the paradigm a little. Where we see it is she has this amazing conception, which I have criticisms of, right, but I still think it's a brilliant conception, that capitalism could not develop in its original beginnings, nor can it continue in the present without uh, capitalist societies taking over, undermining, and seeking to destroy the developing non-capitalist world. So for her, imperialism and colonialism were not political policies that it was possible for capitalism to live without. You can't realize surplus value, she argued, that is, you can't uh, achieve the circuit, the circuit of capital between, between money capital, commodity capital, and productive capital. The circuit of capital, which is involved in reproducing capital on a daily basis, it can't, it can't be achieved unless capitalism has recourse to non-capitalist strata that it can make use of and exploit. And she was smart enough to know, because she was a very studious uh, student of contemporary economics and politics, as well as of history, that the vast majority of people in the non-capitalist world, what we now might call in some respects the developing world to the extent that it still exists, were people of color. So she says very directly in her accumulation of capital, capital needs exploitation of the black race in order to continue its exploitation of the white race, okay, of the, of the white worker, okay, or workers in general. She says that very directly, that it scours the earth for new sources of of new markets, new raw materials, et cetera, in order to uh, bring them into the global capitalist market, uh, because otherwise capitalism in the industrial developed sectors can't realize the surplus value that's a, that is a necessary condition for capital accumulation. So in that sense, there is a, 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 there is a dimension in Luxembourg of recognizing uh, racial determinations. There's a second aspect, which I'll be briefer about, and that is Whenever she saw people of color being discriminated against, she spoke out against them. She has beautiful uh, discussions about um, attacks on American slavery and the slave trade, amazing discussions of the use of plantation labor in Colombia and in Peru of, uh, of, blacks, of, of blacks who both were slaves or who had formerly been slaves. Uh, the way that the Europeans exploited the labor power of Africa uh, follow, before and during and following the Berlin Conference of 1884, when they carved up the continent, whenever she, and especially when her own government, the German government, invaded Southwest Africa and committed one of the most horrific genocides in uh, in African history against the Herero and Nama peoples in uh, 1904 to 1911, she spoke out strongly against this at a time when many of her colleagues in the socialist movement actually believed that colonialism was objectively progressive. 
uh, even if they decried some of the methods that we used in colonial by the colonial by the colonial governments, they still bought into many of them bought into not all, but many of them bought into this logic that well, we're still bestowing civilization upon the savages. So she stands out because she did not. She was a, a virulent opponent of the kind of exploitation of people of color uh, that was occurring around the European prosperity. Where she was deficient, however, as I argue in my piece, she still didn't see those in the developing world were combating these kind of racist policies as a subject of revolution in their own right. She still reserved that role to the industrial proletariat, primarily in the developed world. And that was a deficiency in her perspective in which the subjective and the objective components of her analysis, I don't think were properly in, in sync with each other. So what does this have to do? And this, I have to say, I, I just didn't understand it, but I think I'm just slow. What does, in your essay, what does this have to do with, with understanding Marx's idea of primitive capital accumulation? Ah, very good question. This has given rise to a lot of misunderstanding. Now, uh, for those who, uh, to bring folks up to speed <laughs> on, on why there's a misunderstanding, okay, yeah. the conclusion of, of capital, uh, uh, what's now section eight, it was originally section seven, and then it was separated out. It's a concluding section of capital. Marx discusses, turns to a discussion on the historical development of capitalism and the historical origins of capitalism. And he takes as his model, England. And it's England from the 1400s through the time he's writing, okay? Uh, and he takes the, the manner in which a capital, the process by which a capital first becomes accumulated in England at the expense of the rural peasantry and the yeoman farmer as a, as a, a kind of an exemplar of what is happening to many of the European societies or has been happening to many of the European societies of his own day. So he uh, calls this process, which is not a his term, it was a term coined by Adam Smith, the primitive accumulation of capital, that is the first or original early primitive accumulation of capital. Where does the first capital come from, right? Where does this thing called capital, which is the subject of his greatest book, where does it first arise from? It's not a natural thing. It doesn't exist, it doesn't dominate in every society. Why does capital dominate in modern society? Um, and he shows and seeks to show through the case of England uh, that the process is generated by separating the laborer from the land or from their means of, of, of uh, the, from any organic connection to the conditions of their labor. Uh, so in other words, the peasant may be oppressed. The peasant may be exploited. They have to turn over so much of their grain at the end of the month or whatnot to the to the to whoever is over, the Lord over them, but they still have a certain degree of the work process and they're still connected to the soil. They still have a bond to nature. There's a metabolic connection between them and the land. Um, capitalists, capitalists come in and say, no, we need to get rid of some, a lot of these peasants because we need wage laborers. We need people working in factories. Manchester and working 16 hours a day in a dirty factory when you could be, you know, uh, doing what you were doing for your, for your family was doing for generations in the rural sector. So uh, you have to find a way to force people off the land through compulsion uh, so that they no longer can provide their means of subsistence through farming. The only way they can obtain means of subsistence is by selling themselves for a wage to a capitalist. And that's how you get capital accumulation. Okay. Now, Marx is looking at England. Okay. So, um, 
he doesn't have to be talking about how uh, the racial basis of this, because there isn't a racial basis of this in terms of the internal development of England is concerned, right? In other words, you have English land, English capitalists that uh, find an alliance with English landlords to, to force English peasants off the land so that they can work in their English factories, <laughs> right? This is the primitive accumulation of capital, the formation of a class of wage laborers who own nothing but their labor power, okay? And they sell their labor power for a wage. Now, he does say uh, that this primitive accumulation will take different forms in different historical contexts, but for his purposes, is using England as the example, uh, for the purposes of the fact that his historical analysis of capitalism in Das Kapital, volume one, is about West, is, is restricted to Western Europe, okay? Now, he also says, what follows the primitive accumulation of capital, once you violently tear these peasants away from the land and force them into the factories, sometimes by stopping them out, sometimes through military action, sometimes by uh, enclosures, whatever it happens to be, uh, it's a very violent process, right? At a certain point of time, capitalism gets more confident. Uh, now it's got a big labor force working in the cities, working in the factories, um, and the compulsion becomes less violent. It becomes less direct and it becomes uh, more economic in nature rather than political in nature, okay? Now, many people read this and read this to this day, especially a lot of folks who do post-colonial theory really botch this up <laughs> because they accuse Marx. Oh, wait a second. Marx is talking about the accumulation of capital. He doesn't mention race or racism here. So Marxism can't account for the fact that the transatlantic slave trade was integral to the formation of capital and capitalism, because uh, he doesn't seem to be discussing that there. Even though elsewhere in capital, Marx says very clearly that the sl transatlantic slave trade marks the rosy dawn of capital accumulation. So at best, they say Marx is inconsistent. He makes that statement, but he doesn't integrate it into his historical analysis because on class are unable to deal with issues of race. Okay. Now, um, I don't accept that at all because, uh, but there is a, a germ of, there is something important to the criticism that they're making because Marx's followers read it that way. Marx's followers looked at this and said, hey, look at capital. It doesn't say anything in the, it says very little in the primitive accumulation of capital section about race or racism. Therefore, race and racism are secondary phenomena, epiphenomenal. Yes, they're there, but you know, capitalism will outgrow that or whatever, or that's not the fundamental issue at, at hand here. Why, what's the mistake both sides make? Whether it's a post-colonial theorist saying, well, Marx can't account for race because of his theory of primitive accumulation, which doesn't say much about it, or uh, the orthodox established Marxist who said that's true, but that's a good thing. What did they both, the mistake they both made? They read it as a universal theory. That is, it become, Marx um, makes certain comments in the first volume of Capital in the original edition in 1867, such as the um, more developed nations show the lesser developed countries the visage of their own future. If you want to know what's going to happen in Asia or Africa in 100 years from now, look at what's happened in England or Germany. That's the basic conception that he has there that um, the development of capitalism in Europe provides kind of a prognosis of the course of history in lands that haven't yet achieved capital capitalism, 
but are going to experience it sooner rather than later. But by the second German edition in 1872, Marx was aware that his view was being somewhat misrepresented. So he took pains to emphasize and added several sentences in the French edition of Capital to say that my analysis is strictly about Western Europe. I don't intend this as a universal prognosis of the fate to be suffered by all peoples, which means Marx is implying, which becomes explicit in some of his later work after the publication of, uh, by the second edition of Volume One of Capital, that it may not be true that all societies have to go from feudalism to capitalism in order to then get to socialism. A country could be, a, a society could have a pre-capitalist mode of production, either feudal or some other pre-capitalist mode of production, and might be able to transition to socialism without experiencing the ills of capitalistic industrialization. He later discusses this in great detail in his writings on Russia in the late 1870s and 1880s. So what he's basically saying is that I am simply using England as an illustration because I'm limiting myself here to one historical example that pertains to West Europe's history. It's a description of what happened in Western Europe. It's not a prognosis of what has to happen to everybody else. But everybody read it that way. And pe most people still read it that way. Yes, class comes first and race therefore is epiphenomenal or secondary. Or they say, well, if you focus on class as a fundamental issue, a fundamental, not the fundamental, even if you focus on it as a fundamental issue, you occlude, you obscure uh, the integrality of racism in the development of capitalism. So to get a perspective of racialized capitalism, many people argue, you basically have to dump Marx's theory of primitive accumulation. Uh, I think it's because they're reading it as a universal theory when it was a very restrictive analysis. Marx says clearly at the end of his life, he did not, his, his work is, he never developed a universal theory of history. He never developed a theory to explain all stages of history. Even though there are some passages that could be read that way, that was not what his intent was. Uh, he was trying to do an analysis of capitalism as it currently exists, as it will exist, and give some historical examples of how it came to existence in one part of the world, West Europe. That's all he was trying to do. When we read Marx's work as a universal theory of development, uh, then we start getting into all kinds of trouble. And this, that's clear. I guess I'm a little confused because it, it feels like if you read Marx and then read, you know, again, people like Oliver Cox or Eric Williams, you, you can begin to see patterns in terms of how primitive accumulation happens at different moments and in different places in the world. So what's the problem? Well, um, <laughs> Uh, yeah, Eric, uh, see, uh, look, uh, Eric Williams basically got his uh, uh, tutorial in writing uh, his work from C.L.R. James, and C.L.R. James got his uh, work from the, as a tutorial from reading Marx's Capital in a careful way, <laughs> uh, <laughs> along with Ryan Dunievsky and other people that he was working with in that period of the 1940s and 50s when he was developing some of these conceptions. So in a certain sense, uh, let me put it this way. Uh, here is the problem, is that... Um, if you, if you look back uh, at much of the history of Marxism and, and U.S. Marxism, U.S. socialism, you generally get this notion that um, racial discrimination, racial oppression is something that 
uh, is obviously uh, integral to American society and American uh, history, but the struggle against it is fundamentally a question of civil rights that is uh, in principle achievable within the framework of capitalism, which did not mean that Marxists did not support the struggles against racism. They did support the struggles against racism, any serious Marxist. I mean, there were exceptions, of course, but the vast majority did. The US Communist Party did some very impressive work in the 1937 with the Popular Front when they betrayed a lot of that earlier work. But the earlier US Communist Party did some very, very impressive work in organizing black Americans, sharecroppers, et cetera, fighting racism, Jim Crow, et cetera. But it was still under this kind of assumption that it's a, a struggle for democratic rights. It's a struggle for civil rights. And that the fundamental struggle against capitalism per se, when it comes down to negating capital as a form of social domination, that is bestowed upon the working class. Now, with that kind of conception, you're kind of like, okay, so you're Richard Wright and you're in the Communist Party and you hear this, okay? And you're being told, yeah, you're, you're, we support you. We support you all the way insofar as this is a fight for a, a more democratic America. But then when somebody like Richard Wright says, but how does my fight against racism inform your conception of socialism? How does my fight against racism, how, how is it integral? How is it absolutely integral to any effort to successfully transcend capitalism, right? You see, that's a different issue. So you see what I'm saying? So if, if you argue, uh, for instance, there's different ways you can argue this point. If you say that capitalism could have existed or, or, or there was no necessary reason for uh, capitalism to make use of racism, it just happened to have done so. Okay, but there's just no integral, intrinsic connection between racism and capitalism. Then there's also no intrinsic relationship between the struggle against capitalism and the struggle against racism. That's They're right. Independent right. variables. Mm -hmm. And that's when you get this kind of thing that's been very predominant in the left, which is class reductionism. Right. That uh, the working class struggle against capital comes first. That's the universal struggle. The black struggle is a particular, which could help, of course, an important one, blah, blah, blah. We support it, et cetera. But when push comes to shove, it gets put in the back burner. I see. I want to go back to, to Rosa Luxemburg and her accumulation of capital. And, and you, you said a few minutes ago that you had some criticisms of her work. Mm -hmm. um, I'd like to focus on her critique of of. Marx and his understanding of how capital grows. Mm -hmm. So I, again, I don't think I totally understand where they differ. How does she conceive of the growth of capital versus how does Marx conceive of the growth of capital? And in your mind, which is correct? Okay. Luxembourg knew Marx's work very well. She knew Marx's capital very well. She knew Marx's economics extremely well. And she was a brilliant thinker. So the issue here, however, was that um, both she and Marx the problem when it comes to the question, how does capitalism manage to reproduce itself from one day to the next? Uh, capitalism is not satisfied, of course, with just reproducing itself on the same level from one day to the next. That is the same level of economic output one day to the next. Capital always strives to increase the amount of value, profit, money, etc., capital that's produced from it, that's called expanded reproduction. So, the, But the question is, how is this possible? How can capitalism constantly expand given a fundamental internal contradiction in capitalism? 
And here is the contradiction that both Marx and Luxembourg understood and identified. They simply had different answers to the question of how to explain and resolve that contradiction. The contradiction is this. If you produce, you can produce all the valuable goods and services you want, but if there's nobody to consume them, the value embodied in those products or services is not realized, right? So if you and I are building a car and it has you know, $10,000 worth of, of our labor time embodied in that car and making the car, uh, but if nobody wants to buy our car, what happens to it? It doesn't enter the market. It doesn't enter the circle, the cycle of reproduction. It doesn't get sold. So the, 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 pro, the commodity product doesn't get turned into money. And then the money can get turned into purchasing other products, right, in turn. So the circuit of capital is broken. That is called a realization crisis, is when too much is produced and can be consumed. Now, why is too much produced in capitalism very often than can be consumed? For a very simple reason. Uh, capitalism strives to increase profit by uh, increasing the productivity of labor. How do you increase the productivity of labor? That is, get a worker to produce more in less amounts of time. That's the key to generating greater levels of profit. But if you produce more, if you force somebody to produce more in greater units of time, you have to, you have, to have them utilize labor-saving devices. That is, use capital at the point of production or in circulation to allow more to be produced with fewer workers. So you get greater productive output, but you have fewer living, you have fewer, a relatively lesser amount of living labor. Now, here's the problem. People always tell the story, you know, why did Henry Ford decide to, uh, you know, um, give his workers a, a raise to uh, pay them $5 a day, right? Back in the early 20th century, when that was a lot of money to pay a worker in those days, $5 a day, he got smart and he realized, hey, we're building these cars that only rich people can buy. There's only so many rich people in America. I got workers building these cars, but they're poor. If I pay them better, my own workers will buy the car. <laughs> so in other words, this contradiction between production and consumption, the gap that prevents the realization of surplus value would thereby be, at least for his industry. The point is, on the one hand, capital wants to keep wages as low as possible because they want to keep profits as high as possible. At the same time, they want to produce as much as possible through productive output and increasing the productivity of labor, because that also makes their profits higher. These mm -hmm. two drives are in opposition to each other because mm -hmm. it inevitably leads to overproduction. Too much is being produced. Not enough is being consumed. I'll give another example of this. I was just telling a friend the other day. Why, did, why was it Chicago, not New York City, that invented the skyscraper? They were first developed in Chicago in the late 1800s, and New York then later copied them. That is the idea of having steel freight, internal steel beams holding up a building. Well, because the steel mills were here in Chicago, because the coal was right nearby, the iron ore was right nearby, the labor force was right there, uh, right in the lake, the, the Great Lakes provided the transit route for all these things. They were producing an amazing amount of steel, but then they found out it wasn't enough people to buy them. So the value embodied in the steel was not being realized. So somebody said, we got this excess steel. What are we going to do with it? And some architect in Chicago, who's uh, a very famous architect, as a matter of fact, uh, said, um, well, uh, wow, instead of building 12-story buildings with big external, you know, wall, having very thick walls, can I get a building up to 20 stories high by having internal steel beams? Bingo, you have a now a market for steel. Before you know it, the realization crisis is overcome for that industry. Mm -hmm. So 
Both Luxembourg and Marx understood this, that capital is involved in this constant disequilibrium. It's striving to increase output. And at the same time, the workers can't buy back the output. Now, you might think the capitalists can buy back the excess output, but they can't either. With all the talk about, you know, the 1% and how rich, you know, unbelievable wealth that people have, a small minority of people have today, when you add up all of their wealth, even the luxuries of the rich can't consume the excess product that's produced by capital accumulation. Now, here's where the difference comes in. Luxembourg and Marx both agree on this. Luxembourg says, well, since you can't, the excess product, surplus product can't be consumed by either workers or capitalists within a given capitalist country, the only way you can realize the value of the surplus product is by having it be consumed by non-capitalist, by by consumers in non-capitalist countries. That is invade, colonize, take over a given country, destroy their traditional communal forms of social organization, bring in commodification, bring in money markets, bring in all that stuff. Then these people subjected to imperial domination will be the source of absorbing this surplus product. And of course, as they do so, they gradually become increasingly pulled into the orbit of capitalism itself. Their pre-capitalist forms of social organization melt away as they are more and more dominated by the capitalist world market. But this produced itself at an ever-expanding scale. She said, however, if it ever was the case that capitalism would completely take over the entire world, and there is no longer any non-capitalist society left on the face of the planet, capital would no longer be able to avoid its realization crisis. It would then, of necessity, collapse. Now, Marx, on the other hand, looks at this and said, and now, by the way, her criticism was, the problem is when Marx looks at the problem of reproduction and the environment of capital, Marx says, look, for the sake of simplicity to understand what's going on here, let's create a kind of theoretical model in which we make believe that this society does not have any foreign trade. When we're talking about a single isolated capitalist nation, and we're going to also not worry about um, changes in the productivity of labor. We're not going to worry about other uh, factors, uh, changes in technology. Let's just take a, a capitalist society on its own and see what are the internal dynamics that would explain uh, how capitalism both produces this disequilibrium of consumption and production, but what are the, also the internal ways it tries to overcome that disequilibrium and what ultimately gets in the way of fully achieving, fully achieving that. And that is what she didn't like, first of all, because she said, well, he's dealing with this abstract model that doesn't correspond to reality. I mean, instead of dealing with the contradiction mm-hmm. between the capitalist and the non-capitalist world, he's assuming that the whole world is capitalist, right? Um, Marx is doing so for a specific reason. He is saying that the biggest, the way that capital actually tries to get around this problem is that even though consumers, whether workers or capitalists, cannot consume the bulk of the surplus product, capital itself consumes the surplus product. Now, how does that work? Well, think of a, think, go back to your steel mill, right? A steel mill uh, is a very capital intensive uh, place, as you can imagine. And you can't make steel without coke. That, right, the carbon, and you can, well, there's some talk of now trying to do it in different ways, but at least predominantly you have to use coke and you have to use iron, right? So you have this iron and it gets consumed in the, with coke in the process of making this new product, steel, okay? So 
Marx says this is productive consumption. Capital embodied at the point of production eats up the value of these capital inputs like carbon and iron ore in producing this product. So capital becomes big with capital is his phrase. So there's not just the personal consumption of consumers to consider, which Luxembourg looked at. You also have to look at the productive consumption of capital by capital. The very technological apparatus sucks up the value and allows the system to reproduce itself. But at a certain point, he says, this gets so extensive, the number of workers in the factory relative to the value of the capital that they're producing, that at a certain point, uh, it becomes increasingly hard uh, to reproduce the value of the capital that you've, uh, that you've generated. That is, you have to, you know, the capital depreciation costs and everything else, you have less living labor, which is the only source of value, because according to Marx and Luxembourg, machines don't create value. They just transfer the value that the worker invests in it, uh, in producing it. Uh, so you end up with a decline in profit rates a long-term decline in profit rates in which, especially in manufacturing, the more that capitalists try to make profit, the more their rate of profit begins to, re to, to get lowered. Uh, and so when that situation emerges, well, then they say, well, maybe I should pack up and go somewhere else, like to China, where I can get a higher rate of profit. Or maybe if I can't get the highest rate of profit in China, I'll go to Bangladesh. And if I can't get into Bangladesh, maybe one day I'll go to Ethiopia. We, we call this the race to the bottom, right? So here is Marx's approach. He's basically saying that the, the contradiction of capital is internal to the nature of the capital-labor relationship. Luxembourg is saying the central contradiction is external to the labor-capital relationship. It's the capital-non-capitalist relationship. That's the fundamental one. Does that help at all? It helps a lot. I'm now I'm curious what are you, who's right in your mind. Well, that is for everybody to decide. In my, in my view, um, uh, Luxembourg's theory is brilliant. It's internally coherent. It's logical. It's extremely well thought out. She wrote this book, The Accumulation of Capital. It's like 500 pages. She wrote it in nine months. How she did that with all the other things she was doing at the time, I think it was a superhuman effort. I can't believe she did it. And it's a beautiful book. I mean, a lot of people find it very turgid and difficult to read, uh, but I just find it uh, such a... It's such a it's it's like a gem it's really a beautiful work but you know it's like a work of art that's uh <laughs> that you appreciate and then when you but when it comes to philosophy when it comes to you know political economy uh you have to ask what's the logical conclusion of the argument so let me just put it this way if luxembourg were right uh that it's the contradiction between capitalism and non-capitalist sectors that is the fundamental contradiction and that capitalism, capital tries, ha, must use these non-capitalist sectors uh, and make use of them in order to maintain the capitalist system, how well does her theory hold up 100 years later, today, when the whole world is capitalist? If the whole world is capitalist, according to Luxembourg's theory, capital accumulation should be impossible. We should have reached by now or should soon be reaching the collapse of capitalism. Yeah, Marx's theory, on the other hand, since he uh, makes the contradiction, not capitalist versus non-capitalist sectors, but uh, 
living labor versus dead labor or capital at the point of production, a contradiction between them, right? Uh, that is that dead labor, capital grows big with value and consumes ever more of this surplus product at the same time as it creates a downward pressure on profit rates. Well, then you have an, a theory of capital that can both explain why there is, for the last 40 years, for instance, an inability of global capitalist system to overcome the fundamental decline in, decline in profit rates that has plagued it since the mid-1970s, which sent it on the escapade of neoliberalism. But it also explains how it is that capitalism does not automatically collapse with the exhaustion of non-capitalist strata, because it, it, the whole world now is capitalist. So Luxembourg's theory would seem to hold up if you assumed, one, the Soviet Union was not capitalist, Mao's China was not capitalist, the rest of the developing third world that used to be called the third world was not capitalist. If you assume that and you read Luxembourg 20, 30, 40, 50, 70 years ago, you would be very find this theory very, very attractive to say, wow, um, yeah, capitalism needs to, ex to try to take over and exploit these non-capitalist lands. That's why we have a Cold War. That's why we have anti-communism, et cetera. That's why we have taking over third world countries, supporting right-wing dictatorships, et cetera, uh, but, uh, by the US. But the point is that um, it, 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 provides an, it would seem to provide an explanation of those policies uh, that uh, is very, very attractive. And that's what makes, uh, in many ways, a theory uh, why it, 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 ha it has the life that it has. But I don't think the Soviet Union was ever socialist or even on the road to socialism. Same thing with Mao's China. I think that they were state capitalists. Uh, and by now it's pretty obvious that they're state capitalists. I don't see how anybody can argue that China is not state capitalist or Russia is not state capitalist. Show me a society, even Cuba, which has done its best job of anyone to try to steer clear of the vagaries of the world market. It's a tiny little island. You can't ask somebody to do the impossible. You can't ask Cuba to create socialism in one country when even the Soviet Union couldn't do it. So even Cuba is part of this capitalist world market. So if, there's, if that's the case, where is the non-capitalist strata? Where is the outside of capitalism? The outside of capitalism are those who are oppressed by capitalism. The working class, the national minorities, the women, the people of alternate sexual identities that don't identify with the system. That's the other side. That's the outside of capital. Not that they're totally outside. We're living within a capitalist society. We bear the stain of capital. At least that's where the contradiction should be located. Not between capital versus non-capital, but the contradictions within capital. And I would add, insofar as we think of ourselves as all of us affected or impacted or shaped by this domination of the dead labor over living labor, the dead over the living, that is capital over living labor, which we are, which we're all, we're all in, in some way affected by this, one thing, a brilliant observation Marx makes over and over again is that in capitalism, human relations take on the form of relations between things. They treat us as if we're things, but a human being can never be made into a thing. As long as you have a mind and as long as you're capable of acting based upon your conscious abilities, you are a subject, not just an object. And so the contradiction really comes down to that. Which wins out? Our subjectivity, which wants to be free of alienation and reification, or the process to have our lives take the form of an object to reification and objectification. Mm -hmm.